All right. Well, um, uh, for the past uh, two years as a church, we have been working our way off and on through the Gospel of John. So we'll be in John for a few weeks, and we'll take a break. We'll be in John, we'll take a break. Uh, and over the past couple of weeks, we've been doing that, and we've been exploring a specific section of the Gospel of John that's known as the Farewell Discourse. Uh, and it spans several chapters, depending on how you're counting things. It could be from uh, John 13 through 17, uh, because that's where the night begins and the night ends, or the actual teaching body of what Jesus is doing there is really from 14 to 16, but it's just kind of this, this whole 13 to 17 is Jesus' last hours with his disciples. Um, a few short hours after this, an angry mob is going to show up, uh, and they are going to arrest Jesus. He's going to be put on this mock trial. He's going to be spit on, beaten, and crucified. And so as, as Jesus knows that's coming up, he begins teaching and encouraging and instructing his disciples, some of these like, hey, before I leave, here's what you need to know kind of instructions. The things that those disciples would need to know to carry that faith on that they had discovered in Jesus over those three years prior that they would need for the rest of their lives, but it's also a message that is for all of us. If we're going to follow Jesus, that he says some things in that, that passage that are just like, we need to know these things. And so we've been looking at that over the past couple of weeks. Today, we're going to wrap up our exploration of the farewell discourse, and we're going to look at um, a, a prayer that Jesus prays. We're going to hone in really on one specific section of the prayer. But at the end of the farewell discourse, John 17, all of John 17 is just, it's just prayer of Jesus. Uh, and when we think about a prayer of Jesus, the first one that comes to our mind, if you uh, have any kind of experience in or around church, we probably think of what's called the Lord's Prayer, um, the, the kind of the classic, our Father in heaven. I didn't say who art. I really wanted to, and I'm like, nah, I can't get the King James out of my head. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we think of as the Lord's Prayer. Our small group just said this prayer together this past week to, to close out our meeting. It's a great prayer. It's a powerful prayer. But it's not necessarily like a prayer uh, that, that Jesus is praying. It's a prayer his disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. And he's like, okay, when you pray, this is how you do it. What we're going to look at today in John 17 is actually a prayer of Jesus, like God the Son talking to God the Father in heaven, like pouring out his heart in praying. And so let, let's jump into that. Yeah, we're going to kind of hear a little kind of set up for us because we're going to look at the last section of the prayer. John 17 can kind of get broken down into three sections. The first section is about uh, verses one through five, and Jesus prays, and that section of his prayer, he's kind of praying for himself. He prays this prayer, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And so in the words of, of Jesus in John's gospel, the language of glorification is Jesus going to the cross, that his glorification in John's gospel is, it is his crucifixion. He's given a crown of thorns and a robe is put on him and he's lifted up for all to see and he is glorified in that moment. And so Jesus is praying, hey, glorify me so that I may glorify you. It's him acknowledging the time is here. I'm about to be killed. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to do the thing that I've been put on this planet to do. And then he shifts to the next section in verses 6 through 19 and begins to pray for the disciples who are there with him that night, the 11 that are around him. There was 12, but earlier in the night, Judas has already left to go betray Jesus. And so Jesus begins to pray for those guys, and he prays things like, hey, protect them from the evil one. Uh, give them joy. Sanctify them. Like, that is to transform them over the course of their lifetime. And he says, I'm sending them out. So he prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then in the last section of this prayer, Jesus prays for us. He prays for me, and he prays for you. You, like, we actually made it into the scripture. That's, that's pretty cool. And so John 17, 
Starting in verse 20, Jesus says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So I pray not only for these. So he'd just gotten done praying for the disciples who were there, like those who are literally right around. He's like, I'm not just praying for them, but I'm also praying for those who believe in me through their word. This recognition that he knows, you know, he's going to be crucified, risen from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. And those disciples who were around him there that night are going to be given, they're going to be entrusted with this mission to go and tell the world about what I've done. And that begins playing out in the, in the early decades of the early church. These, these very men who were there with Jesus that night, they start telling everybody. And the, the message of Jesus, the good news about his life, death, and resurrection, the king Jesus has come, that his kingdom is here. Like it starts spreading around the Roman Empire that many come to believe through the words of those disciples. But it didn't just stop in those first few decades with their actual words and their eyewitness testimony. Those disciples, as they get older in life, they start writing these things down. And so Matthew, who was there with Jesus that night, writes down an account of the life of Jesus. John, who was there with Jesus that night, who were reading the words of today, writes an account of the life of Jesus. Mark, who wasn't there in that room, but Mark gets all his information from Peter, who was, writes an account of the life of Jesus. Luke wasn't in that room, but Luke is is an ancient historian and a doctor, and he investigates things, and he talks to all of the eyewitnesses, and he writes down an account of the life of Jesus. And so over the generations, for centuries, the words that have been recorded by these disciples about Jesus have led many, have led millions, billions of people to put their faith and put their trust in who Jesus is. It's this beautiful picture, actually, of how the the Christian faith gets handed off from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. We receive it from someone, and we're entrusted to to pass it on to someone. And Jesus is like, hey, there there are going to be many who believe in me through your word, like the the guys that are there that that night. And as he's praying in this prayer, he says, I'm praying for those who come to believe in me. That includes us who are here in this room today, includes every follower of Jesus on the planet today and everyone who will, every follower of Jesus that will come after us. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. Now, there's, there's this, this thought that, that I want to kind of play with for a minute. Like, what would we think Jesus would pray for? Now, some of you may already know what he's going to pray for, and so pretend that you don't. We're going to read it here in a second. If, if you don't know what he's going to pray for, like, you actually have an advantage right now because you don't have to try to get something out of your mind. But if it's like, Jesus is going to pray for his disciples, and there's just one thing he's going to pray for. What do you think he would pray? And we're like, uh, maybe he would pray that our faith would be strong, that we wouldn't turn our backs on him. Maybe he would pray that we would tell people about him. Maybe he would pray that we don't fall away. Maybe he would pray like he prayed for his disciples there in the room that night, that we'd be protected from the evil one. Certainly it would have something to do with that. If Jesus could only pray one thing for us, what would it be? And he says, I, I pray for those who believe through their word, and this is his prayer for, for us. May they all be one. Jesus prays for unity among his followers, for unity among what we would call the church today. You know, of all the things that we could think of, like, hey, what, what, what's Jesus going to pray for? I'm guessing unity, if we didn't already know, probably wouldn't make the top five. Probably wouldn't even make the top ten. Like, it wouldn't even cross our minds, like, oh, he would pray for this or that or that. But, like, no, he's like, no, my, my prayer is that you may be one you may have a common like heartbeat of who you are and who I am and what I, I have for you in this life. I pray that you would be one. He's after our unity. And unity is not the same thing as uniformity. 
Right? There's uniformity in which everybody looks and acts and thinks and talks the same. That's not what Jesus is after. He doesn't want uniformity. Jesus does not want a bunch of mindless drones who all just look the same, think the same, talk the same, act the same, live the same. He's like, no, 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 I want, I want you to bring all of who you are and your diversity and, and your, your quirks and who I've made you to be, but yet I want you to be unified. I want there to be something in your life. I want your faith in me to be greater than all those other things and that be the thing that unifies you. And that has really been the story of the church in the early centuries and also throughout history. The diversity and yet unity in the early church was astounding. As you read through like some of the letters, the Apostle Paul and others write, you just see this picture in the church where it's like, there's people from a Jewish background, there's people from a non-Jewish background. You see that there's poor people, you see there's rich people, you see there's men, you see there's women, you see there's young, you see there's old. You see there's a, a, a huge portion um, of the church that are part of the, the slave class of the Roman Empire, but then you also see wealthy people from the Roman Empire. Just this vast diversity, and yet, in the church and under Christ, they are unified. They are one. They are together. This has played out in the church down through the centuries. The, the, the church, the people of God, it is multilingual, multicultural, multi-ethnic. It spans the globe. It spans time. It spans history. I know sometimes it's hard for us to maybe get our minds around this if we're not exposed to what else is in the world. We tend to have a very um, a Western-specific mindset, a very American-specific mindset, but the church is a global thing, that the majority of Christians today actually live in the global south not in North America or Europe. But the largest concentration of Christians on a continent today is actually found in Africa. That people who study this kind of anticipate that shifting in the next couple of decades, that the country with the most Christians in it was, is likely going to be China within the next couple of decades, although we won't know for sure because the church is underground there. The church is this thing that, 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 that crosses all kind of human-made barriers. There's this incredible diversity, and yet we're called to be one. We're called to be unified. That there's something greater that holds us together, that we're unified in our love of Jesus, that we're unified in our declaration that he is king, that we're unified in this fact that we have all these various identities and things that make us who we are, but all of those are secondary uh, compared to who we are in Christ that we are, we've made new in him, we are his children, and we're, we're on mission to point the world to him. There's a unity in those kind of things. This, by the way, is one of the things, I, I, there's a lot of things, but this is one of the things I love about our church. Like, I absolutely love about this group of people who are here today and, and those who aren't here with us this week, but like, you, you may not know it from just sitting in the room and, and looking around, but there is a ridiculous amount of like diversity of thought and life experience in our church. There are people who are part of Hope Community. It's like church and faith have been a part of their life basically ever since they were kids, and that's just kind of what they grew up with. There are a lot of people in our church today who church, faith, Christianity was never a part of their life until they started coming here. There are people in our church who it's like, you know, church has always been a part of my life. Faith's always been a part of my life. But they come from vastly different backgrounds. We have people from a Methodist background, Lutheran backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds. Um, let's see, we got a CM, we have CMA church represented here. We have the Restoration Church represented here. We have Charismatic churches represented here. We have Anabaptist backgrounds represented here. And it's like, but here we all are saying, okay, we're, we're about following Jesus. We have different ways of viewing the world and thinking about things from a social perspective and political perspective. There, there, are, there are Republicans in our church and Democrats. And it's like, I didn't know that was a possibility. I didn't know people could actually do that and get along. And then there are people who think they're all crazy. I don't like any of them. Maybe most of the people by the, by the sounds of the chuckle. 
We, we see social views differently. There, there, are, man, there are people in our church who on, on one end of the spectrum would say, I, I, I lean towards a, a Christian nonviolence uh, perspective where I almost step out and say, I don't want to participate in Babylon systems and so governmental structures and things. And on the other end, we have people in our church who have been active military and law enforcement. And here we are, we come together and we say Jesus is our king and all those other things are fun to talk about and we have great conversation and we can talk about that for the rest of our life. But at the end of the day, Jesus is king and we're following him. Like Jesus has this heartbeat and this, 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 this desire for unity among his people. May they all be one. And, and the nature in which this oneness, like, he's, like the example he's gonna give us is like, that's crazy. He's like, I want them to be one. Again, as he's praying, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Uh, may they also be, the implication here is may they also be one in us. Uh, some translations actually put one in there, but that's the idea. The way that, that, that the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, that kind of unity, it's like that's what I desire for my church. That the, the, from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future, like God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have been in this, this unified, loving community of oneness. And he's like, I want my church to reflect that kind of love that's crazy. That is a high bar. It's like, that's my desire. And he has this desire for us, not just so we can like sit around and sing kumbaya and it's like, I love you and you love me and we're a happy family. Where my 90s kids at? Come on. Right? It's not just for the, for the sake that we can kind of sit around and, and just be like, oh, we're so loving. And that's good, but there's a purpose to our unity. He says, I pray that they would be one so that the world may believe that you sent me that our unity is actually mission critical to the mission of the church. That there, he's like, there's something that, that, that happens, that there's an effect and a purpose to your unity, that our unity and the way that we are able to, to figure out our differences and do life together actually declares the gospel to the world around us. It actually declares the truthfulness of who Jesus is to the world around us. And on the flip side, if we're bickering and we don't love each other, it tells the world around us that maybe this Jesus thing isn't legit after all. It's like, I, I want you to be one so that the world may know. This, that, that our unity declares the, the, who Jesus is. This is why the diversity in the church is so important. This, this is why we want to fight with all we can to not become the church that's just, well, this is the whatever church. This is the church. This is the Republican church. This is the Democratic church. This is the church that does this or whatever, whatever thing we might rally around so that we gather a whole bunch of people that all look the same, think the same, and act the same. That is actually a deterrent to the mission of Jesus. Like, we, we want to be diverse and reflect the diversity that we see around us, and yet, in spite of that, be able to be unified. This is such a witness to the world around us. Like, th this is, I, I believe with everything in me that this is one of the primary things that the, that the church is called to in our culture today. As we look around the world, and everybody is divided, and everybody's hateful, and everything is, pick a side. You got to pick a side. Like, you have to fall into a camp. Are you on the left, or are you on the right? And that includes, like, everything. It's like, well, you know, people on the left, like, this on their pizza. It's like... That's stupid. That has nothing to do with politics. Like, everything is about politics. Everything is about division. And you're, you're told, pick a side. You can never break ranks with your side. And you must hate everybody on the other side. That there's no possible way that people who see the world differently could actually get along and actually love each other. There is this opportunity for the church to come along and say, actually, watch, we can. We can. And that when the world looks on and sees that and goes, that's crazy. How could you be so different and, and yet get along that way? How can you be so different and yet love each other? The world would look on and say, that's not natural to live that way. And we go, you're right, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And maybe there's something to this Jesus thing after all.
Like there is this opportunity for us to step into that. I pray that they would be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, I've given them the glory that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. There it is again. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. Again, Jesus speaking with the Father. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's the purpose on the end of it again. Here's why I want them to be one, so that the world may know. I want the world to know that you have sent me and have loved them. There's something about our unity and the way that we love each other and care about each other that points to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Notice what he says at the first part of verse 23, though. He says, as he's praying to God, I am in them, I am in them, and you are in me. I am in them. There's this recognition that, that, that the kind of unity that Jesus desires is not something that we can manufacture on our own. It, it only comes about by him being in us, by his spirit being in us, by the same Holy Spirit working within each one of us in bringing us together. He says, I'm in them and you are in me. So like this, this is crazy. So there is that eternal kind of love relationship that has existed within God. This is why God is love because he's been eternally loving himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's like, I'm gonna actually, and because I'm in you as in us, his, fo- his followers, and I'm in the Father, I'm actually bringing you into this love relationship that God has with himself and this unity that is found within God himself. You are being included into that. And it's only because we're being brought into that and it's his spirit working within us that we can even be one. There's a recognition that, okay, this is, this is not something that we can just force, that we can just do. Like God's gotta be at work in and through us to see this unity happen. But then on the flip side, because we can be like, oh, that's great. Let's go home. We'll just pray for unity and, and it'll just happen. It seems as though that's never the way that God works. Like there's there's these two parts that that are are constantly in balance in our faith where God is the one who works, God is the one who moves, God's the one that changes people, he's the one that transforms lives, God is the one who who changes the world, and yet at the very same time, he's like, but I want you to be a part of that. I'm going to work in you, but there's also something for you to do. I'm going to work in the world, but there's also something that I want you to do. I'm going to bring about unity in the church and oneness. I want you guys to be one, but there's also something that you need to do. And we actually see the something that we need to do earlier in this evening with Jesus and his disciples. We begin to look at the, the whole of the night and it, it becomes two bookends. We have this bookend here where Jesus is praying, I pray that the, they would be one. That's at the end of the night. The beginning of the night, Jesus begins with a demonstration to the disciples of here's what it looks like for you to pursue that kind of relationship. This night begins with this this famous moment where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. And so he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. And so it's interesting how John actually starts this. He doesn't just say, hey, Jesus got up and started wiping uh, the disciples' feet. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. 
So John's like, I I want you to know, like, Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is firm and secure in his identity as the the Son of God, as God in the flesh, and that everything had been given in his hands. That is all power, all authority, it all belongs to Jesus. And being secure in that identity and all that power and all that authority, so he got up. Jesus goes, I have all the power, all authority, I am God in the flesh, and I am going to use that power in who I am to serve the people around me. The, the position, many of you may already know this, but the, the position of a, uh, the person who would wash feet in a household in this culture was like the lowest servant in a household. Only the lowest servant did this. And so there's this statement that Jesus, who is in the, the highest position with all the authority and all the power, puts himself in the position of the lowest servant and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he goes one by one to each disciple in the room that night. It's just been so awkward. I've been like, what is happening right now? I don't know. And, you know, Peter breaks the awkward tension as he sometimes does because Jesus is like going to wash his feet. He's like, oh, not me. And Jesus is like, no, I need to do this or else you have no part in me. And Peter's like, fine, bath time, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, you're good. I just need to wash your feet. Like, I just wonder what the other disciples are thinking. Like, Peter, come on, man. But he gets through washing everybody's feet and then he begins to explain the significance of it. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet, And he put on his outer clothing, he reclined again, and he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that's what I am. And so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. I've given you an example like th- this, this is what love looks like. This is what it looks like to serve one another. This is what it looks like to put other people first. If you ever find yourself in a position where you have authority over someone, this is what you do with it. You don't lord it over them. You get down and you wash their feet. I've showed you what it looks like. And he would give them an even greater example the next day. Because the next day he would hang on a cross, bleeding out, naked, beaten, spit upon, insults hurled at him, and these words would be ringing in the disciple's head. I've given you an example. This is what it looks like for you to follow me and to love each other. And so the night continues on, right? He's given them this kind of example, and he's told them what it means. And so he lands then at the end of of chapter 13 with like, okay, here, let's put all of that into context. If you forget everything else, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Verse 34, I give you a new command, love one another. As I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Guys, if you forget everything else, here's a new command. This is, this is the one that like everything else will get wrapped up into this one, love one another. And you're like, check, got it, love people. But he doesn't, let, he doesn't, he doesn't give us the freedom to define what that kind of love looks like. He's like, nope. I've already defined it for you. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And to us, oftentimes that's like words on a page, like, okay, love the way that Jesus has loved us. But for the guys that he's talking to, they had just spent three years seeing up close and personal what does it look like for Jesus to love them. They, they had been there firsthand experiencing it when time and time again they did stupid things. And he's like, okay, he was patient with them. When over and over they doubted who he was, he's like, okay, let, let me try to explain this again. I'll try to reveal this again. 
when they would want to fly off the handle and like James and John are like, can we wipe out an entire town? He's like, no, okay, like no. He's just like he loves them over and over. When he walks up to the, some, the, the, the diversity within the disciples is, is amazing. When he walks up to Matthew, the tax collector, who everybody hated and saw as a traitor in that society, he said, yeah, but you can come follow me, Matthew. Leave that, follow me, you're welcome with me. And then on the flip side, he also goes to a guy named uh, Simon the Zealot who would, like, would have absolutely hated Matthew and in any other context, like stuck a dagger in his chest, literally. And he's like, actually, I'm going to love both of you and I'm going to teach you how to love each other. It's like, that's how, I want you to love each other just as I have loved you. And then that night he washed their feet. I want you to love each other the way that I have loved you. And then the next day he would go to the cross for them and for us. I want you to love each other the way that I have loved you. And by this, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone's going to know that you're my disciples. How The world is going to know if you're one, if you're unified, the world will know me. The world will know you're my disciples if you love each other. Love each other, be unified, get this right, and people will start paying attention. The world will know that you're my disciples. The world will know that the Father has sent me, that I have loved the world. We, we do this. The way that we pursue unity, yes, it's through, through Jesus working within us, but it's by, it's by the example. With the example of Jesus in mind, in the spirit of Jesus working within us, we love each other and we pursue unity. And when we do that, the world sees Jesus. And they see this play out. And they say, man, there must be something to that because that is so different than anything else we see around us. We've got to learn to love each other well. And, you know, I think we do this pretty well as a church, honestly. Like, I, I, again, I, I said I love this church. Um, I've seen some churches and been in some contexts and heard some stories from other pastors of churches that do not do this well. We do this pretty well, but there's always room to grow. And, and the thing is, and, and I hope we'll see this, is that we have to learn to love each other well before we can go out and love the world well. We have to be practiced at that. Absolutely, we love the world. Absolutely, we're for our neighbors, and we love our neighbors, and we pursue relationship with our neighbors. We do that all the time. We're going out in the cold, wet rain after service today and raking leaves for our neighbors because we just want them to know we love you and we're for you because God is for you. But we also have to start with this foundation of loving each other well first because if we don't love each other well, if we can't love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are forgiven by Jesus, who the same spirit is living within us, if we can't love them well, how could we love somebody that doesn't know Jesus well? And there's this, this pattern that emerges in the, in the church, the early church as well. You know, the early church didn't necessarily go out trying to, like, change the world for Jesus. They were just changed by Jesus and they began to form these countercultural communities that was permeated by the love of Jesus, and then that just spread out into the world. That there, there's something that happens that, man, the, the love of God, the bridge of the love of God to the world is the church. And if that bridge is broken, like we're not loving each other well, that the world doesn't see the love of God either. The world around us experiences the love of God in and through his people, and so we gotta be loving each other well. That has real implications, right, for how we operate as a church and how we treat one another and how we engage with other Christians around us in the world. You know, for us as a church, um, this, is, this is why we're always stressing, hey, church has got to be more than just a Sunday thing because it's really hard to just love each other like for an hour once a week. Right? But, but actually get to know church is not an event that we attend. It's a, it's a family that we belong to. 
Um, you don't love people well at an, at an event. Unless you already know them, then that's one thing. But you just don't show up at like a random thing. You're like, I'm here at my kid's band recital to love these people. And you're like, well, stay home then, okay? It's weird. But like when it's a family that you're a part of, it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's where love happens. Where it's, it's a group of people that, that you're, you're doing life with, you're doing faith with. It's got to be more than a Sunday thing. And so what does that look like? That looks like, hey, Sunday's a part of it. Like if, if Sunday's the only thing that, that you can make work right now, just get to know some people before the service, after the service. Introduce yourself. Allow a relationship to develop. This is why we stress community groups all the time. Like community group is where that, that love of one another and that unity begins to flourish. Start, man, get, get to know somebody. and just it, it's, it's some text messages throughout the week. It's an encouraging phone call. It's like, hey, I was thinking of you. I was praying for you. It's serving together with some, somebody. Sometimes one of the most unifying things that we can do is walk side by side, shoulder to shoulder, like serving someone together. But these moments and these opportunities for us to love one another well and say, so let's step into this. Let's be unified. And I got to tell you, like this, this is going to become even more important. Um, as, as we continue to grow, like the intentionality of this has got to be, it's got to be there. Um, uh, some of you um, have taken notice that like we've been growing a lot over the past year and we're usually setting up chairs each week and, and we're going to two services next week to accommodate for that, that growth. We want more room for more people to discover hope in Jesus. But that means we got to fight even harder to actually know and love each other well. Uh, I, I know for me, there'll be weeks when it's like, I'll be having a conversation. I'm like, oh, I didn't see so-and-so this week. And someone's like, they were here. I talked to them for 10 minutes. And I'm just like, man, there's so many of us now that, that we don't all get to connect each week. And that's okay. We just got to learn to shift and say, I'm going to be intentional about connecting with someone. I'm not going to know everyone. I'm not going to love, like directly be able to love everyone. But I do need to know and love someone and be known and loved by someone. And so we want to push into that and lean into that and know, like, hey, this is, Jesus desires this for us. And when we do this, the world sees. So that's the implication for us kind of internally as a church. But loving one another and being unified has massive implications for how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and in our local communities as well. Because sometimes, if you're anything like me, I find it a lot harder to love some fellow Christians than I do non-Christians. Because I'm just like, don't do that. Like, ah. Oh. And it's easy for me to get bitter at like other followers of Jesus that don't maybe follow Jesus the way I do. Or maybe I disagree with something on. And maybe, like, maybe they're legitimately wrong, but that doesn't mean that I get to, to view them any differently. And so for us to, to love other Jesus followers well, even if we disagree, even if we're like, I don't believe how you believe, I don't like that you do that, but, but you know what? You're my brother or sister. And we can disagree. Brothers and sisters fight, right? They pick on each other. It's okay. But we still love each other. And I want to be a church that's known for that. It's really popular right now, uh, kind of in Christian culture and church culture. It's very popular right now to take shots at the church. You explore social media for a while, you'll see a lot of people taking pot shots at the church. And like, the church is messed up, and the church is this, and the church did that, and I've left the church. And it's like, listen, some of that is well-deserved because the church has done some dumb things because we're full of messed up and broken people. And, and we should call out, you know, painful things, harmful things. We do need to call that out, but we call it out from a heart of, of love and a desire for reconciliation. Never at a, a shot of saying, well, you know, you're not a real Christian and I don't like you and never talking to you again. 
We want to be a church that just champions the other Christians around us, that prays for other churches, that, that, that says, you know what, the other churches in our community, we want to celebrate what they're doing, we want to support what they're doing because they are our partners, not our competition. It's like we're, we're in this together. We do have an enemy, and it's not the other Christians around us. It's the powers of darkness. And so we remember like the words of the, the Apostle Paul that, that we are one body, one spirit, one hope. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's a lot of different expressions of that, but in Christ we're one. And so we want to fight for that. We want to push for that. It's Jesus' prayer as he's about to leave, something he wants to pray for his disciples then, pray for his disciples for 2,000 years and us today, is that we would be one so that the world may know who he is. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to do this because this is hard. Um, there's so many things, even within the church, there's so many things that, that have the potential to divide us. Uh, different personalities, different life experiences, different backgrounds. We live different places. We have different, there's just so much. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit and through your example, that we would be able to love each other well, that we would be able to lean into unity, and that when we do that, the world around us would see you that our neighbors, our, our coworkers, our classmates, our family members, that they wouldn't see us loving each other well, but they would see your love at work in and through us. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.